Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now after three years, five flight instructors and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Welcome in, everybody, to the Audio Ground School Podcast. My name is Nick Smith. I'm the host and the creator of Part-Time Pilot Online Ground School. So here we are, episode number 30. I can't believe we are already on episode number 30. We're just trucking along through the lessons in the online ground school. One other cool milestone that we just hit at the time that I was recording this is we have over 25,000 downloads of the podcast. So that is pretty freaking sweet. And 30 episodes, 25,000 downloads. And our online ground school, we still have yet to have a student fail their FA written. I can't remember the exact number, but it's over 350 students in a row now. We did have one close call, but we're still going strong on that record. So anyways, things are going great. I'm super happy to be here and provide you with this free content. I think I would have loved a podcast like this while I was, you know, driving to my flight school or waiting for my instructor, something like that. There was a lot of waiting around. And I think now with our technology and our phones and stuff and our earbuds, we can just pop this in and we can learn on the go. So without further ado, let's get into the lesson. We're continuing on in the online ground school. So if you're in the online ground school, you got to go to my courses. Click on the course. It's step two, online ground school, private pilot lessons. That's going to be where all the lessons, quizzes, mnemonic devices, images, video lessons, all that stuff is going to be contained. And we're on section six of that course, which is on national airspace systems. And last episode, we covered class D and class E. The episode before that, we did class Bravo and class Charlie. So in this one, we're going to get into uncontrolled airspace in class Gulf or class G airspace. Then we'll probably get into lesson eight on primary and satellite airports. I think that'll be a quick one. And then we can go to lesson nine on special use airspace, which is kind of a long one. So hopefully we'll be able to finish that up. If not, maybe we'll have to do it on the next episode. But I think we'll be able to cover those. So without further ado, let's get to lesson seven of section six on class golf airspace. All right. So class golf or class G airspace is the uncontrolled or govern free airspace. You can kind of remind yourself that, you know, what the G stands for govern free if you want. And it's void from ATC or air traffic control jurisdiction. Neither VFR nor IFR aircraft need an ATC clearance to operate in class Gulf airspace. Class Gulf airspace exists wherever class A, B, C, D or E does not. Practically, it starts at the surface and extends up until it hits class E or echo airspace at either 700 feet 
1200 feet AGL depending on the class echo airspace above it. So basically what I'm saying here is remember we talked about how class E can either have a floor at where it starts at either 700 feet at the surface, 700 feet or 1200 feet. Well, what is underneath that 700 feet or 1200 feet class echo airspace? What if you're, what if class echo starts at 1200 feet and you're flying at a thousand feet AGL, what airspace are you in? Well, the answer is unless you're flying within, you know, another airspace, you're going to be in class golf. So it's not marked on the chart. Usually sometimes it is, and we'll get to that but almost all the time it's not marked on the chart and it simply is where class echo does not exist. So below class echo there are. So again, there are usually no specific markings for class golf airspace on a chart, but when it is depicted, it is shown as a thick shaded blue line. Again, it's rare and it's only depicted when it is not below class E or class echo. And we'll get to when that might be and how you can tell what altitudes that is. So the thick shaded blue line is just like the thick shaded magenta line for class E. If you remember from the last episode, class E has a thick shaded line where there's one side that is solid, darker side. And then, but on the opposite side of the thick line, it's much more transparent and lighter colored. So same thing as the class E, but it's blue, not magenta. In these areas where you see this thick shaded blue line, the class G extends from the surface to 14,499 feet with class E starting above it at 14,500 feet. The rest of class G can be determined on a chart without any markings by finding the floor of class E airspaces and understanding that class G lies beneath it. So if you're following along in the online ground school, we have an example of where, when you see that shaded blue line, that signifies class G is from the surface to 14,499. Now these are just specific areas where the FAA wanted to have uncontrolled airspace up to, but not including 15,000 feet. Specific sections around the US where this occurs, there's not a ton of them, but they are there. And again, it's shown with the thick shaded blue line for class G. And again, it's always, unless otherwise specifically marked on the chart, it's always the surface to 14,499 with class E starting above it at 15,000. And then if you're thinking ahead, the class E would go from 15,000 to 17,999 because then at 18,000 class A or alpha would start. All right, so if you're in the online ground school, go check out that example. We label it with class G, you know, less than 14,500 and we show you the blue line there. And then we also have, if we look at the same image that we use for class echo, where we are showing, you know, where the class echo starts on the solid side of the shaded magenta line, it starts at 1200 feet AGL on the lighter side of that line. It starts at 700 feet AGL. And then inside the thin dashed magenta lines is where it starts at the surface. So we're looking at that and we can see that the class G airspace is from the surface to 699 feet underneath the areas where class E starts at 700 feet. And then it's from the surface to 1199 feet or 1199 feet underneath the areas where class E starts at 1200 feet. So you can take a look at that again and you can just look at where the class E starts and know that class G is below that. So what are the class G weather minimums? We had, you know, the weather minimums for class A, B, C, D. Well, we still do have some class G weather minimums. There still are some rules that you have to fly, but there is 
no contact with ATC, not even, you know, when you're close to an airport, but there is no contact with ATC required. Similar to Class Echo. Now, I actually learned something here, you guys. I'm a good pilot as always learning. And in our last episode, I said that what makes Class G uncontrolled was that there wasn't any rules or regulations. And that is technically wrong because you still have weather minimums and there's going to be, you know, you still have to have a student pilot certificate, at least if you want to fly. You can't just let any Joe Smo, you know, go up and fly or anything like that. So there are still some rules. So I, I was wrong there. The difference and why we call Class G uncontrolled is actually because in Class E, IFR aircraft are still considered controlled and talk with ATC. So for VFR, Class Echo and Class G are basically the same, but for IFR, they're different. So that's why Class G is completely sort of uncontrolled, even though it does have some of these rules and regulations that we're going to get into, like the Class G weather minimum requirements. They exist so that you can see and avoid other aircraft and stay out of clouds. Now, there's a lot lot of different ones and this is sort of the airspace that sort of screws up everything you might be thinking okay it's been pretty easy to remember the weather minimums we had class b three statute mile clear of clouds we had class c and d both three statute miles and 152 and then we had class e the same one below 10,000 feet three statute miles 152 but above 10,000 feet that changed to five statute miles 111 so that that's pretty easy right we can I mean, after some repetition, there's only like four different things or three different things we have to remember there. Now with class G, it totally blows that totally out of the water. And there's a lot more things you have to remember. And unfortunately, I mean, it is good for you to know this, but the FAA written is could very likely test you on this. So we do have to remember it. So bear with me here. We'll do some review, but there are a lot of kind of scenarios. You know how class E had a different scenarios for the altitude. There's a lot of those for class G because it gets into day and night differences as well as altitude differences. So bear with me, we'll get through it and then we'll review it and we'll even do some quiz questions on it. All right, so at or below 1200 feet AGL above ground level in the day, you have a visibility of at least one statute mile and clear of clouds. So that's kind of brand new. We had the clear of clouds earlier with Cloud Bravo, but we had visibility three statute miles. So this is kind of brand new pairing. One statute mile clear of clouds, that's for at or below 1200 feet AGL during the daytime in class G. At or below 1200 feet AGL at night, time that's a visibility of at least three statute miles and then you have the 152 which is a thousand feet above 500 feet below and 2,000 feet horizontal so that is the same as class c and d and e when below 10,000 feet that's the three 152 that is again that's 1200 feet agl or below at night in class g so right now if you're looking at this we have at night they sort of make the the minimum requirements a little more stringent to match the class c d and e requirements requirements. But during the day, you know, when visibility is a little bit better, those requirements are reduced a little bit to one statute mile clear clouds. So just think of it that way. Then you have at or below 1200 feet AGL at night and within half mile of an airport in the traffic pattern. So when you're in the traffic pattern within a half mile from the airport, below 1200 feet AGL, which you probably will be if you're in a traffic pattern at night, it goes back to one statute mile clear of cloud. So basically it says, all right, 
Below 1,200 feet AGL in the day, one statue mile clear clouds. If it's at night, that's three statue miles, 152. But if it's at night and you're in the traffic pattern, it goes back to one statue mile clear of clouds. If you're just practicing doing pattern work, they're gonna relax the requirements a little bit for you in uncontrolled airspace. Then we have above 1,200 feet AGL, but below 10,000 feet MSL. So we have that this range of above 1,200 feet AGL, but below 10,000 feet MSL in the daytime. It's one statute mile, 152. So again, the 152 is back, but it's a one statute mile. So we have the one statute mile visibility, 1,000 feet above, 500 below, feet below, and 2,000 feet horizontal from clouds. Then we go to above 1,200 feet AGL, but below 10,000 feet MSL in night. And the visibility goes up to three statute miles, and the cloud clearance stays the same at 152. 1,000 feet above, 500 feet below, and 2,000 feet horizontal. So again, here, we have the, the less stringent requirement during the day, only need one statute mile of visibility with 152. At night, that bumps up to, you need three statute miles of visibility with 152. So again, there's sort of a pattern here. All the nights have a little bit more stringent requirements, particularly on the visibility. All right, so <laughs> I told you this was a lot. Finally, we have at or above 10,000 feet MSL in day or night. So it doesn't matter day or night. If it's above 10,000 feet MSL in Class G airspace, you have a visibility of at least five statute miles, 1,000 feet above, 1,000 feet below, and one statute mile horizontal from clouds. Now that's the five statute mile 111. That's the same as the Class E above 10,000 feet MSL. So that makes things a little bit easier there. You can kind of find these pairings and, and match like things. That's a lot. I remember literally just like forgetting about class G because it was so annoying to try to remember this until like the night before my written exam. So <laughs> I totally get it. And again, during our review, we're going to have some mnemonic devices to help you guys with this stuff. And we're going to review this here in a quiz, but real quick, I'm just going to say it again, kind of quickly go through these again. At or below 1,200 feet AGL in day, you have one statute mile clear of clouds. At or below 1,200 feet AGL at night, three statute miles, 152. At or below 1,200 feet AGL in night and within a half mile of airport in the traffic pattern, we go back to one statute mile clear of clouds. Above 1,200 feet AGL, but below 10,000 feet MSL in day, you got one statute mile, 152. Above 1,200 feet AGL, but below 10,000 feet MSL at night, you have three statue miles, 152. So the visibility goes up. And then at or above 10,000 feet MSL, day or night, it's five statue miles, 111, which matches class E at 10,000 feet or above. All right, so good? You got those all memorized? Easy peasy? Yeah. It's going to take some time. Again, we're going to review this. So let's move on and then we'll get to some quiz questions. Uh, there are no communication requirements within class G airspace, as we mentioned, although it is recommended that you use the local Unicom or CTAF when maneuvering near an uncontrolled airport. Now, I didn't mention this in class E, but I should have. Class E or class Echo, same thing. When you are at an uncontrolled airport, it is highly, highly, highly recommended that you use the local Unicom or CTAF. I was flying not, not that long ago and I was near an uncontrolled airport I was coming in, I was, I was making my calls and there was like someone doing acrobatics right, <laughs> right near, you know, where I was entering into the pattern from my altitude. They were not chatting with me at all. And that was because 
the acrobatics was doing so many quick maneuvers and altitude changes and airspeed changes and all that. It was pretty frightening, honestly, to not be able to communicate with them and understand what they're going to do. So I highly recommend you use that local Unicom. Unfortunately, at uncontrolled airports, we have to just rely on other people also using those. So if you're out there and you're someone that hasn't used those, please, please use those. It makes us all feel better and it makes us all safer. All right, the speed limit. There is a speed limit in Class G airspace. It's 250 knots when below 10,000 feet MSL. And then there's no equipment requirements for Class G. We talked about there's no communications requirement. Unless you're above 10,000 feet MSL and 2,500 feet AGL. So both, if you're both above 10,000 feet MSL and 2,500 feet AGL, then it's required that your aircraft carry a working mode C transponder. And again, we're gonna get into those transponder specific requirements, but the only time in class Gulf that you would need one is if you're above 10,000 feet MSL and 2,500 feet AGL. So you're in one of those areas where the class G goes up to 14,499 feet MSL with the, you know, those ones where the blue shaded lines on your chart. So that's the only time you would need equipment requirement. And because again, I said that the transponders are kind of special in that way when they're required. It's not necessarily just within an airspace or not. They have altitude requirements and stuff like that. So we'll get to that, but that's that for class G. And then the minimum certificate requirement is a student pilot certificate. So no change there. The only airspace that there's, well, there's technically two airspaces that are different. Class Alpha, you have to have IFR. Class Bravo, you have to have either a private pilot or a student pilot plus that endorsement. If you read or hear a test question that starts with during operations outside controlled airspace, you should know that they're talking about class G. So if they ask what are the weather minimums for that uncontrolled airspace, you know to use class G weather requirements that we talked about. So that's something that's kind of how they phrase it. They, they don't just tell you class G in in the FA written, they like to say during operations outside controlled airspace. And you have to know, oh, outside controlled airspace, that's uncontrolled airspace, that's govern free airspace, that's class G airspace. So just a little tip there for the written test. Okay, the first quiz question to help you guys remember this class G stuff is gonna be a true or false one. Neither VFR nor IFR aircraft require ATC clearance to operate in class G airspace. True or false? Neither VFR nor IFR aircraft require ATC clearance to operate in Class G airspace. The answer, of course, is true. Class G airspace is governed free or controlled airspace, and neither VFR nor IFR need ATC clearance. That is what makes it called uncontrolled. All right, let's do another one here. Class G airspace is normally not depicted on aeronautical charts. It's usually assumed to exist below Class E airspaces. However, when it does appear on the chart, what color are the boundaries of the line of Class G airspace on your aeronautical charts? That's kind of a long one. So basically, when you do see it labeled on the chart, what color is that? Is it A, shaded blue, B, solid magenta, or D, or C, sorry, dashed magenta? Shaded blue, solid magenta, or dashed magenta? The answer is a shaded blue. So it's like the class E shaded dark to transparent line, but instead of magenta like class E, it's blue. All right, let's get into some of the tricky visibility and cloud clearance stuff. What is the minimum visibility required for day flight in class G airspace at or below 1200 feet? So at or below 1200 feet in the day. Is it one statute mile, two statute miles, 
or three stat statute miles. At or below 1,200 feet AGL during the day, one statute mile, two statute mile, or three statute mile. The answer is A, one statute mile during the day. It is, you know, one of the, the least restrictive in class G. So just remember it's one statute mile and clear of clouds for class G at or below 1,200 feet in the day. Okay, let's do another one here. Above 10,000 feet MSL, the minimum visibility in class G airspace is what? One statute mile, three statute miles, or five statute miles? Above 10,000 feet MSL, the minimum visibility in class G. One, three, or five statute miles. All right, the answer is C, five statute miles. Remember, above 10,000 feet, class G is the same as the class E requirement for visibility and cloud clearance above 10,000 feet MSL, which is five statute miles, 111. 1,000 feet above, 1,000 feet below, one statute mile horizontal. And the, of course, the five is the five statute miles. So answer C, five statute miles for above 10,000 feet MSL. All right, let's do above 1,200 feet AGL but below 10,000 feet MSL in the day, the minimum cloud clearance in class G airspace is what? So we're talking about cloud clearance, not visibility. And we're talking about that range of 1,200 feet AGL above ground to 10,000 feet MSL in class golf. What is the minimum cloud clearance? And we're talking about the daytime. So we have the altitude band, 1,200 feet AGL to 10,000 feet MSL. We have the time, which is the day, and then we have class golf, and we're looking for the minimum cloud clearance. Your options are 500 feet above, 1,000 feet below, 2,000 feet horizontal. That's the That would be 512, not 152. Or is it 1,000 feet above, 500 feet below, 2,000 feet horizontal? That's the 152. Or is it 1,000 feet above, 1,000 feet below, and one statue mile horizontal from clouds? That's the 111. The answer is B152 when we are between 1200 feet AGL and 10,000 feet MSL in the day it's the 152 it's the same as class C D and E for below 10,000 feet all right let's do one more of these above 1200 feet AGL but below 10,000 feet MSL at night what are the minimum cloud clearances in class G so same question but at night is it 152 1,000 feet above, 500 feet below, 2,000 feet horizontal, or is it 111, 1,000 feet above, 1,000 feet below, or one statue mile horizontal, or is it fi 500 feet above, 1,000 feet below, one statue mile horizontal? 511, we haven't talked about that one yet. That's probably a clue, that's probably not that one. So it's either 111 or 152. It is still 152, day or night, between 1,200 feet AGL and 10,000 feet MSL. All right, uh, last one here. What is the airspeed limit within class G airspace below 10,000 feet MSL? Is it A, 200 knots, B, 225 knots, or C, 250 knots? Airspeed limit below 10,000 feet MSL in class G, 200, 225, or 250? The answer is C, 250 knots is the airspeed limit. All right, good job. I'm very proud of you. It's a lot, so you might want to listen to this one a couple times. You might want to go in the online ground school and check out those visual aids and do these quiz questions. We have 13 total. We only covered about five or six. So we have some visual questions too where you got to look at a map, which will really help with you guys. So yeah, go check that out.
And then let's move on to the next lesson here. So we've we've done the basic airspaces. We've done class Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo, and now Golf. And now I want to talk about primary and satellite airports. I briefly mentioned it before. I just want to talk about them again, what they are and why they are important to, to understand. But before I do that, let's take a quick little break and listen to a student that recently used our course and it's a little bit of a testimonial. They they came to me and they asked, hey, you know, I really enjoyed your course. Can I tell students about it? I said, heck yeah. So um, if you're out there and you're wondering, you know, still trying to figure out which ground school to get, take a look at what this student had to say. I just took my exams and I am so thankful to Nick for being there for me. I am a mother, I'm a professional, I'm a wife, I'm a daughter, I am a community worker. So given all these roles that I have to fulfill every day, the 24 hours is not enough. And I was at the verge of just giving it up my dream, it's not my profession, it's just my wish to be able to be a pilot. So do I have to do this? Can I do this? I was at a point where I thought, when I thought, this is it, I can't do it, maybe in my next life. That's when part-time pilot, I really mean it. I googled and it popped up, it's called part-time pilot. And I asked, my family, should I just send the money and try it? Why not? I tried it. And I'm telling you, money well spent. And I can't tell you, there are so many commercial courses, excellent you know, kind of theory. They all give you similar theory that you need to pass this test. But what is so special about part-time pilot? Nick is special. He is a great teacher. He never turns you down. He's available on the speed dial. Um, you can text him, you can send him and shoot him an email, you can contact him via Facebook. You know, there is never a time, I really mean it, this is not an ad. I'm just saying it because I'm so grateful for what he has done. And, um, you know, no matter what, how simple the question is, I'm not at all good with math. And I would ask him, how do you do that? And he would simplify that for me. So I really, really want to say this simply because I scored 92%. And that is a great achievement given where I started this journey from, you know. So I would like for all those people like me who are out there struggling and second guessing whether you can do this or not, please make use of part-time pilot and Nick will get you there. Show him your dedication, and he'll get your dream come true. Love it, Nick. Keep doing what you're doing. This is not for money, man. You're not a commercial guy. You're an excellent teacher. You teach from your heart, and, and it is felt um, in every session that you run, hours and hours. The money that you charge me is nothing. The hours that you gave me is everything. What a lovely knowledge to learn from you. All right. Have a great one, guys. If you need any help, Nick is there. Just jump in and get that part-time pilot support. 
so that he can continue to do what he is doing. Great work. Great pilot, Nick. Take care. Bye-bye, guys. Okay, that was Indra. Indra was an awesome student. She was very hardworking. Started from very little knowledge, I do have to say, and really worked hard and became just sharp whip on all her stuff. And so I really thank her for, for wanting to say that. I really appreciate those kind words. And hopefully that made your decision a little bit easier. Anywho, let's continue on to lesson eight on primary and satellite airports. And this is lesson eight of section six of the online ground school. So let's get started. Sometimes we see airspaces within airspaces or airports within another airport's airspace. In these situations, we call the primary airport the airport whose airspace encompasses another airport. We call the satellite airport the airport who lies within another airport's airspace. If you are flying into a satellite airport within another airport's class B, C, or D airspace and your airport does not have an operational control tower, then you are required to establish two-way communications with the class B, C, or D controlling ATC prior to entering the class B, C, D airspace from the air. So you'll, a lot of times because of class B or class C, airspaces cover a large area you'll likely see a smaller airport in, in within that airspace but it won't have a control tower because they've designed it to they want that traffic to be talking to the same atc as the class bravo so that they can dictate where that airspace comes in and out to that airport so that's kind of an example of what i'm talking about now if you're departing so that's flying into, right? You want to have two-way comms with the class B, C, D controlling ATC prior to entering that airspace. If you are departing from a satellite airport within another airport's class B, C, or D airspace, and your airport does not have an operational control tower, then you are required to contact the class B, C, D controlling ATC as soon as practical after departure. So, right, when you're coming in to land at that satellite airport, you have to establish two-way comms with the airspace, the primary airport's airspace, prior to entering that airspace. But when you're taking off, when you're departing from that primary airport, you're already in their airspace. So what the rule sort of is, is that you have to contact that controlling ATC of that primary airspace as soon as practical after departure. Now, if you're flying into a class C or D airport that is a satellite airport within another airport's class B or C airspace, then you would need to contact the class B or C prior to entering their airspace and you would advise them that you want to enter the class C or D so that they can pass you along to the next controller. If they do not advise you, then you can contact class C, D yourself prior to entering just as you normally would. So here in a situation, you have either class C or D airspace. If it's not within any other airspace, before you enter, you would contact their tower, right? Now let's say that class, and you see this a lot with class D airspace that is within a class C or B airspace and it also has a tower. So what you have to do, what this is saying is you have to contact the class B or C, that, that bigger airspace, the more, the airspace for the primary airport prior to entering their airspace and you would advise them what you're gonna do. Say, you know, I wanna land at this smaller airport with class D and they can pass you along to that controller at the class D airspace. 
So you always want to be in contact with the larger, more primary airports, airspace, and let them pass you off unless it is not required of you. So this is sort of what these things are trying to tell you here. And then finally, if departing out in this situation, so you're departing out of a class C or D airport that is a satellite airport within another airport's larger class B or C airspace, then you would use the class C or D controlling ATC and advise them that you want to enter the surrounding class B or C airspace so that they can pass you to the next controller of that larger airspace prior to you entering. So it's kind of like you got to think of you being passed along to the airspaces in sequential order order that you want to enter. And you got to think of which one is the primary and which one is the secondary. Hopefully that made sense. This isn't something that you quite need to know for the FAA written, but it's more so for your flight training and for your check ride and how to communicate with ATC, especially in busy areas where there's airspaces within airspaces. Hopefully you guys found that useful. And that's all I'm gonna say about it. We don't need to do a quiz on it or anything because again, like I said, you probably won't see a question on this. Maybe you might see a question about the definitions that a primary airport is the airport whose airspace encompasses another airport and satellite airport is the airport who lies within another airport's airspace. So just kind of know those definitions. That's probably the only thing you'll be asked on the FAA written exam. Okay, let's continue on now. This is gonna be a little bit longer episode because I really wanna get this lesson done. That's special use airspace, lesson nine. So I wanna get this done so that our next lesson can be a review of all this airspace stuff and focus on some memorization techniques and stuff like that to help you guys out. So let's get into it. Special use airspace, lesson nine of section six on national airspace systems. This one is gonna be on special use airspace. There are six types of special use airspace that you will find on your charts some of these will be prohibited from flying you will be prohibited from flying into and can get into some serious trouble if you do others you are able to fly through but with caution and it's important to know which are which and which you need to avoid so we have prohibited areas restricted areas warning areas military operations areas or MOAs alert areas controlled firing areas or CFAs and then we also have temporary flight restrictions and things like military training routes, National Wildlife Refuge, those aren't kind of known as the major ones. Those aren't really memorized as like a part of these major spe special use airspaces, but I put them in that category. So we're going to talk about those because to me, they're special use airspace. All right. So let's talk about prohibited areas. A prohibited area is defined as an airspace of defined dimensions within which the flight of aircraft is prohibited. Such areas are established for security or other reasons associated with the national welfare. Prohibited areas are defined by a blue outline with blue slashes along the inside of the border as seen below. So it's gonna be like, almost look like a fence that has fallen down. So it's gonna have like a, a blue line and then perpendicular to that is a bunch of like blue planks coming off of it. And you can see an example of this in the online ground school lesson. There's a visual aid right there for you. Examples of prohibited areas range from Disneyland, military bases, presidential homes, NASA facilities, Area 51, Washington DC, and more. Each prohibited area is different in its dimensions, and in order to determine the floor and ceiling of a prohibited area, a pilot can reference the special use airspace table on the side of their VFR sectional chart. So this goes for all of these special use airspace. They're going to have a specific number, usually R dash something or, or a W dash something, so like R dash 5002A. And then on the margins of your sectional charts, 
you look and there's going to be tables of these numbers like r dash five zero zero two eight. You find that it's going to give you information on when these things are operational, what the seat floors and ceilings are, et cetera, et cetera. So really check that out, especially if you might have a route that goes close to that or wants to go through one of these. Obviously, a prohibited area you cannot fly in because you are prohibited. Private pilots and general aviation are never allowed in prohibited areas. So even if there is hours of operation, you aren't allowed in a prohibited area. So usually the prohibited areas won't be listed with hours of operation. I don't think they ever would. But just know if it's a prohibited area, you're not allowed as a private pilot or general aviation. But you can find the floors and ceilings in, in again in the margins on your sectional chart. All right, the next one is restricted areas. A restricted area is defined as an area that contains airspace identified by an area on the surface of the earth within which the flight of aircraft, while not wholly prohibited, is subject to restrictions. This is confusing because it sounds like sometimes you might be able to fly through them, right? Well, however, like prohibited areas, general aviation is not allowed at almost any time into a restricted area. Sometimes a general aviation pilot can fly through a restricted area when it is not active and when specific permission is given. So that that's a lot of criteria, so it's best to just fly around these things. It has to be not active, and you have to get specific permission. So only if you absolutely have to, then you would have to go get permission and all that. However, when active, general aviation is prohibited from flying into restricted areas. To find the vertical dimensions and times of use for the restricted area, again, you can reference the special use airspace tables on the margins of the sectional chart. Restricted areas can exist to contain things that can cause danger to non-participating aircraft. Restricted areas use the same blue lines with dashes as prohibited areas and are usually labeled with a four digit number following in R as I mentioned before like we have an example again in the online ground school we have R-4404 B and C so you can look in the margins for those numbers and look up information on that restricted area the next one is warning areas a warning area is an airspace of defined dimensions extending from three nautical miles outward from the coast of the United States that contains activity that may be hazardous to non-participating aircraft. Think of aircraft, you know, that might be used as in the Navy or the Coast Guard, things that aircraft that travel a little bit faster and do a little bit different things than our stuff. So it might contain activity that might be hazardous for non-participating aircraft, like those types of military operations. Warning areas are similar to restricted areas, except that they are over over the ocean. General aviation aircraft are prohibited from flying in a warning area when active. However, most general aviation aircraft would be, won't be venturing out further than three nautical miles off the coastline where warning areas start. At least I probably wouldn't. And I know that some, if you rent aircraft from some places, they won't even let you do that. But there's definitely situations where you can and would like fly to Catalina Island or something that would be really cool I haven't done that but I know that people that have anyways I'm not sure that that is three statue miles or not I'm not sure where that goes anyways that's besides the point to find out the vertical dimensions as well as the times the warning area is active again reference that the margins on your sectional chart a warning area uses again the same blue lines with slashes as prohibited and restricted areas and again we have an example of one w-104a and it even has a note warning national defense operating areas operations hazardous to the flight of aircraft 
conducted within these areas. So it's just kind of a note to double tell you not to go in these areas. All right, the next one, we have a military operations area or a MOA. MOAs exist to separate non-participating IFR traffic from military flight activities. MOAs do not prohibit the operation of general aviation aircraft. So unlike the other ones, the MOAs do not prohibit the operation of general aviation aircraft. It's kind of the in-between that tries to, you know, work together with general aviation and military aircraft. BFR pilots are allowed to fly within a MOA even when it is active and do not need a clearance. However, pilot must exercise extreme caution when operating in a MOA since they are designed for military training activities that necessitate acrobatic and abrupt flight maneuvers. I'm going to repeat that because this is an FA written question. A pilot must exercise extreme caution when operating in a MOA. There are also military training routes used to ensure the greatest practical level of safety for all flight operations and to allow the military to conduct low altitude, high speed training. These routes allow them to fly over the 250 knot speed limit below 10,000 feet MSL. General aviation aircraft are prohibited in these routes. VFR training routes are depicted on charts by a line with a VR on top of it, while IFR training routes are depicted with an IR on top of them. These routes allow military training aircraft to conduct low altitude high speed training that should be avoided and should be avoided at all times by a private pilot. MOAs are depicted with magenta lines with magenta slashes that surround the border as seen below. So just like the prohibited warning and restricted areas were blue with slashes, these are magenta with slashes. Now, I talked about military training routes in this section. We're gonna talk about those again in more detail, but I just wanted to mention them because they're kind of similar to the MOAs and restricted areas, so I wanted to mention them there. But again, those are prohibited. You're prohibited from flying on these routes as a general aviation aircraft. Now, again, we have an example of some MOAs in here, a picture from a sectional chart of Bush Creek MOA, Buckeye MOA. So go and check those out. The next one I want to talk about is alert areas. An alert area is an area depicted on aeronautical charts to inform non-participating pilots of areas that may contain a high volume of pilot training or an unusual type of aerial activity. This is a way for the FAA to alert the general aviator of unusual flying activities in a specific area. In alert areas, students and trainees are learning things like high-performance maneuvers that are not normally expected motions of aircraft, so they could throw you off if you're not used to it. That's the whole point of an alert area. It's best to avoid an alert area if you can because of this. Generally, aviation aircraft are allowed to fly within alert areas, but should exercise extreme caution. So again, there's some weird stuff that goes on in there that you might not be used to at your normal airport where pilots are just coming in and out of the traffic pattern. There's going to be, I mentioned before that there was that person doing acrobatics not talking talking to me on the radio and that was really scary to me so this type of thing could happen to you in an alert area so it's best to just avoid them alert areas are depicted by the same agenda with slashes line that depicts a MOA and this can be confusing at times if you're confused when planning a flight it's never a bad idea to pick up the phone and talk to a nearby FSS or controlling agency that can help you out because they know the area very well and they I should put this on all the lessons and everything about airspaces and aeronautical charts and airports they have listed phone numbers for these places that you can call you talk to a real human and you can get the, your questions answered and they're not going to be upset that you did that it's all meant for safety and education of all of us in general aviation so we can make us all safer so pick up the phone and ask if you have any questions or confusion about what the airspace is alert areas may list their times of operation directly on the sectional map if not the times and vertical dimensions will be listed in the special use airspace margins on the side of the chart just like all the other information 
And again, we have an example of alert area A-632C, and it says concentrated student jet training right below it. So kind of sometimes it'll give you an idea of what exactly it is that they're alerting you of. The next one I want to talk about is controlled firing areas or CFAs. A controlled firing area is an airspace designated to contain activities that if not conducted in a controlled environment would be hazardous and often invisible hazards to aircraft such as artillery firing, aerial gunnery, or guided missiles. Basically what this means is that controlled firing areas are designed to allow military or civilians to fire, explode, and launch things such as rockets or munitions without halting or interfering with aircraft flying overhead. Similar to alert areas, general aviation aircraft are allowed to fly through CFAs. CFAs are not found on your charts and are there really is no way for a pilot to know if they are flying through a CFA or not. Some more interesting facts about CFAs is that they are not published in NOTAMs. They have no dimensions or published range data and there is no controlling agency to contact. The one regulation that our they are supposed to abide by is that all activity must stop if they spot an aircraft flying overhead. So this is another good thing to call and ask a local FSS about or FAA local office, FISDO office, and ask if they're, you know, in this area, if there's any CFAs you need to know about or anything like that. But they do have a regulation that they cannot fire if there's any aircraft, but you know, that that's not too, that doesn't make me feel fuzzy, but I'm not sure why there's not more regulations on this, but that is what it is. All right. The next one is temporary flight restrictions or TFRs. So again, not considered one of the six special airspaces, but important nonetheless. A TFR is issued to clear airspace for the purposes of safety or security. A TFR can provide a safe environment for disaster relief aircraft, prevent unsafe flight traffic congestions, protect space agency operations, protect the travel of public figures like a senator or a president, or large events such as sporting events, fireworks, air shows, etc. Sometimes over a stadium, you'll see a temporary flight restriction, a TFR, pop up. It's a, a red circle on on a map with shaded and obviously they're not on sectional maps because they're temporary so this is something that you would have to find on floor flight that kind of updates those maps you know with the current times or is something you get in a weather briefing you would understand something you get prior to every flight you got to know during your time if there's any tfrs on your route so something you got to check pre-flight for all flights and then as the name suggests, these are temporary pilots can check for TFRs in the NOTAMs as well. So that's basically what ForeFlight does is they take the NOTAMs and they plot it on there for you. So mapping tools like, like NOTAMs and GPS and stuff like that can, can do that for you. Or you can just check the NOTAMs or get the NOTAMs in a weather, weather briefing. All right. Now there's, there's a memory aid that we have in here. There's a picture and it's McPrawn. M-C-P-R-A-W-N. So think of like a Irish or a Scottish shrimp, <laughs> McPrawn. And so it's military operations area. That's the M. Controlled firing area, that's the C. Prohibited area, that's the P. Restricted area, that's the R. Alert area, that's the A. W, warning area. And then N, national security TFR. So they added the national security for TFR to make it work. But I think that's kind of a funny one, McPrawn. Think of a little Scottish shrimp in there. All right, now I mentioned military training routes. I want to talk about them a little bit more. Military training routes or MTRs are not considered a special use airspace, but are used to ensure the greatest practical level of safety for all 
flight operations and allow the military to conduct low altitude high speed training. I mentioned this before, I'm mentioning it again because it is an FAA written question. They allow the military to conduct low altitude high speed training in excess of 250 knots. So they don't have to abide by those speed limits if they're on their training routes. And that's outside or inside special use airspace. So I mentioned it in the MOA section, but these can be outside air, uh, special use airspaces as well. Military training routes are skinny gray lines charted on the sectional chart. They can be charted as VFR training routes where they're denoted by a VR. So right above the little gray line in black letters will be VR followed by some numbers or an IFR training route where they're denoted by IR. Typically routes above 1500 feet AGL are flown under IFR and routes flown under 1500 feet AGL are flown under VFR. Military training routes can be determined as VFR or IFR by the label of VR or IR, as I mentioned, both the VR and IR will be followed by three or four numbers. When the VR or IR are followed by three numbers, the route flown has at least one segment above 1500 feet AGL. When the VR or IR are followed by four numbers, the route flown is at 1500 feet AGL and below. So if you see IR618, for example, that's IFR training route 618, that has three letters following the IFR. So you know if it's the IFR route, it has three numbers, and and that means that it has at least one segment above 1500 feet AGL. And then if it's say VR followed by three numbers, it would be a VFR flight where at least one segment is above 1500 feet AGL. And then if they have four numbers following the VR or IR, you know that the whole route is at 1500 feet AGL and below. And I have a picture, some examples here in the online ground school. I've labeled them IFR, MTR, VFR, MTR, and sort of what they, what altitudes you kind of expect them at. Okay, so we have one more thing I want to talk about. That's National Wildlife Refuge. A National Wildlife Refuge is an area on a sectional chart marked by solid, thin blue lines with blue dots inside them. So it'll be like quiggly type of enclosed area of a solid blue line. And then inside it's going to have blue dot. And this is telling you that that's a National Wildlife Refuge. And we have an example of the Garcia Wilderness Area and the Condor Study Areas in California. So you can take a look at this. It even has a little note. Notice the pilots, California condors, endangered species nesting in high mountains and bear trap canyon study areas. Pilots are requested to maintain 3,000 feet terrain clearance when over the study area. So, you know, we just want to protect certain wildlife areas and bird life and stuff like that. So that's what these are for. All aircraft are requested to maintain a minimum altitude of 2,000 feet above the surface of national parks, monuments, seashores, lakeshores, recreational areas, and scenic riverways administered by the National Park Service. So that's these national wildlife refuges, big game refuges, game ranges, and wildlife ranges administered by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and wilderness and primitive areas administered by the U.S. Forest Service are also included in the list. Pilots may be requested to fly even higher like in the example I just gave. So the minimum is 2,000 feet unless otherwise posted on the chart. And it's going to be in a note in the chart and it's clear. So look out for those notes on the chart that are next to things like these because this one tells you that the, the limit is different. It's not 2,000 feet above the surface. It's 3,000 feet above the surface.
resource for this particular wildlife refuge. Okay, that has been a long, long episode. We covered class G and did some quiz stuff on that. And then we went over all the special use airspace. We even talked about primary and satellite airports. So it's a real long episode. I need some water. (laughs) It's been a lot of talking, but hopefully you guys enjoyed it. You guys learned some stuff and I will see you next week. And next week's gonna kind of be a bonus. That's what we do in the online ground school because I know this section is asked a lot about on the FA written and it takes a lot of memorization. So we do an airspace review and we throw in some mnemonic device memorization aids to kind of help you out. So we will do that next episode. And then after that, we'll talk about transponder requirements to sort of finish up this national airspace system section. I threw in the transponder requirements in there because it kind of has to do mostly with airspaces. So we'll finish off with that. All right. I hope you have a good week and I will see you next week. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with atc for bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens If you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they 
continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so read. for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step -step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and in, you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on online ground school, and we'll see you inside the online ground school. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.